Let me introduce uh, Dr. Gilam Cha. Actually, we have known each other for a while, almost now 20 years, exactly actually 20 years. Uh, I came to Dallas, I'm um, Waco, 2002, and Dr. Cha is uh, ahead of me. He was, uh, he, fin he, he finished uh, a PhD coursework at Baylor. So he was uh, my neighbor, and then actually through him, I found where the house, you know, next to his. So we, we kind of uh, uh, grew our children together. Now, he is a professor of Old Testament at Evelyn Christian University in Evelyn. And those of you, those of you don't know much about the ACU, ACU is the, uh, in my opinion, the most rigorous, uh, academically rigorous Christian college in Texas. Yes. So it's a very, you know, great uh, academic institution. And, uh, you know, their religion department is a very, very well respected in academia. And the, one of my uh, prayers and the dreams for the church is that uh, we don't want to be uh, church ignorant or uninformed, uneducated. We want to be well informed about the Bible and the theology and the missions and Christian ethics. And I always wanted to bridge the gap between academia and ecclesia. You know, that's actually the reason I went to a PhD, you know. And uh, as you, today, we have a special treat. Some of you remember four years ago, I brought my old friend from Berkeley, uh, he who is a professor of the New Testament at the North Park uh, Seminary, uh, Professor Maxwell Lee. Do you guys remember? You know? So anyway, I want to do like a, a spring forum, sort of biblical theological forum, but we, had, we haven't had a chance, but now we do again, and this time it's Old Testament. And uh, Dr. Gilam Cha is a really solid on that one, so I don't have to even introduce him on that. But you are in the treat. Now, I encourage those of you taking note today, your, your hand will be painful. You will take a lot of copious note, but those of you are listening, you, you hold on to your seat because we will have so much information. I, I look at this as sort of an outline of a, a slide, PowerPoint. We are, we are getting a hard, hardcore Old Testament frontier research and the books, about four or five books in a span of, a, you know, whatever, Sunday sermon. So today is a special treat. If you're a person next to you follows a slip, give him a, give him a wedge, yeah, elbow. Anyway, so as a Dr. Kilam, uh, Dr. Cha is uh, coming up, let's welcome him. And uh, after the, you know, uh, worship, please ask him more. I'm sure that you will ask more questions. Please ask him more questions. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, uh, I've been wanting to come to this church, actually, uh, because we go way back, uh, Baylor days, yes, 20 years ago, and uh, I knew he planted church years ago, but what took you so long uh, <laughs> to invite me? <laughs> uh, uh, but also, uh, not just that, because uh, Pastor Paul and his wife, Jamie, well, we've been uh, friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ for a long time, uh, but also 
we kept in touch for 20 years, and uh, that tells a lot about Pastor Paul, because uh, with other, uh, well, I don't know whether I, sh- I had uh, friends during my doctoral days, <laughs> because it was just uh, busy, just focusing on uh, my thing. At, uh, I'm very task-oriented person. I do my thing and don't pay anything else attention to any, any other things. But anyway, uh, that uh, says about uh, Pastor Paul that uh, we've been keeping in touch. But also, uh, one of the things that I am so excited about uh, visiting this church is that I heard that this church, as I can see now, uh, this is quite international, which is good. Uh, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah in chapter 2, he talks about uh, the future days. He says, in those days, the nations will come to Jerusalem, and they will say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. There, he will teach us his ways. That's exciting. I mean, we're talking about 2,700 years ago. You know what? We are very self-centered. We are, especially as a country, we are very ethnocentric. Uh, you know, I travel with my students uh, to doing uh, mission work, and everybody, uh, wherever I go, uh, people love their countries. And which is good, but there's, I tell my students that there's a thin line between patriotism and idolatry on the other side. Very thin line. And Isaiah, uh, Israel's prophets were one of the first peoples, uh, global peoples. We say global ages these days, but uh, they were the ones who looked forward to that day when the nations come together and worship one God. I tell my students oftentimes that, that there is only one God. You know, we now believe that, right, thanks to the Bible. That was perhaps the dumbest thing to say 2,000 years ago. So, uh, let's talk about the idea of the Torah. To tell you the truth, when I came to this country, I came to this country following that American dream. And... I did not even know how to speak English. I didn't have money. I wasn't even a Christian. And here I am, teaching, well, at ACU, teaching Bible uh, in somebody else's language to American students. I tell my students that I, I don't work. I love what I do. It doesn't feel like I'm working. Uh, not to mention that we have about five months of vacation, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I do not work uh, that much uh, anyway. But I love what I do because it is fascinating. Because what this teaches, this is, it cannot get any better than this. Because this is fascinating when understood in light of the ancient Eastern culture. So we will do some of that today. So let's go to the next slide. I know uh, 
you know, some of those things, uh, especially the map, is very tiny. But uh, that is an ancient Near Eastern map uh, with a tiny country, uh, Israel, in the middle, uh, if you can see, uh, not really well for me. Maybe from this angle, I can see it better. But anyway, uh, Egypt down there is known as a bright basket of ancient world. And the greenish, greenish part, uh, Fertile Crescent, that is a place where Assyria and also later Babylon and later Persia came to uh, conquer that part of the world as well. So very interesting thing in this case is that uh, the Bible, the Bible never claims that Israelites were the first people on earth. The book, uh, the history began at Sumer. What that book talks about is this is about ancient Near Eastern history. And uh, if you can read the subtitle, uh, 39 first uh, in the human history, recorded human history, 39 new things. The law, hundreds of years before this was written, there was a law. The most well-known one is law, uh, Code of Hammurabi, hundreds of years prior to the Bible was written. So this isn't the first thing. Before Israel ever existed, there were those countries, Sumeria, Akkadian, those countries, they were there thousands of years before Israel ever existed. So the Bible doesn't claim, Israelites don't claim that they're the first ones and uh, human history. But what it is is that uh, if we understand this from their perspective in its historical context, uh, this person, the other person, Jacobson on uh, is that a right side, and that person talks about the ancient New Eastern world in the first millennium BC. We're talking about 2,000 years plus all the way to 3,000 years ago. As you can see there, uh, there is a preoccupation with death. Perhaps you can think of ISIS, uh, for example. That wasn't that different. We have uh, plenty of archaeological findings. Uh, Assyrian kings, for, for example, what they had to do was that uh, they had to keep their royal record. So what happened is that we have their own documents. For example, Ashurbanipal talks about this king in the 7th century BC. He, what he talks about is that he talked about killing of this person, his enemy. He didn't just kill. He killed him, cut him into pieces, and he fed the flesh of the enemy uh, to the birds. And Jiju bird, that's uh, perhaps you know particular bird of that uh, particular area. I don't know what that looks like. And also uh, fed the flesh, human flesh, to uh, dogs, fish, and other animals. And he was so proud of it that he kept that record. That's just one example. Sargon. Uh, the one who destroyed northern Israel, 721 B.C., what he did was 
that uh, his letter is found, his letter to one of the governors, his own people, not an enemy, right? And all those lists of the things that uh, he had to provide a day late, you will be killed. <laughs> That's the kind of people. So as you can see, there is a, this brutality, and they were proud of that brutality. Different kind of people. Different kind of culture. That was very common. The thing is, all of that was supported by the religions. So what would you do if you're God? What would you do? Would you not transform that kind of world? The Bible is written to do exactly that. Because when you understand this in light of ancient Eastern culture, this is fascinating. So let's talk about uh, some of those things. Uh, let's move to the next slide. I know there's a lot of information there. <laughs> So, the Bible, the Old Testament deals with these three periods, Assyrian period, uh, actually Neo-Assyrians, but anyway, uh, Babylonians and Persians. So, Assyria was there for a long, long time, but it is uh, around 745, that's when the intersection between Assyria and uh, biblical people, Israel, became very common and tragic because Tiglath-Pileser III studied, once he cons consolidated his, his country, he began to expand, conquer other countries, and uh, take uh, slaves. They were the ones who perfected uh, laying siege what it is is that uh, conquering, uh, for example, Samaria, it took three years. So what they do is that uh, Samaria, uh, those fortified cities, they come with uh, hundreds and thousands of soldiers, camp out there, and then wait until people inside run out of water, run out of food, and you know what happens? They even eat human flesh. So it is calculated. And Isaiah 36 talks about uh, a Syrian commander, 701 B.C., Sennacherib, when he invaded, he even does uh, psychological warfare because he talks to the people inside the walled city in Jerusalem in Hebrew. So that to bring the morale down because it's a long game. It's not quick war, but long game. But anyway, uh, they perfected this uh, deportation, uh, laying siege and deportation. Again, because uh, the uh, Assyrian kings, they have their own record. Uh, the Bible doesn't talk about exact number, but uh, Sennacherib, for example, he has uh, what is known as uh, Sennacherib's prison. And it talks about eight military campaigns of his, not all of his, but uh, one of those eight is about Judah, 701 B.C., when he invaded southern Judah. And 
he talks about uh, destroying 46 fortified cities of Judah. And he also talks about deporting 200,150 people. It's his number. Of course, you know, there's always perhaps, you know, that bias. Uh, so there, there may have been inflation. But when you count all those numbers that they uh, deported in the history, uh, the one uh, there, Vandermeerup, the one on the left, uh, your left, uh, he teaches at Columbia. Uh, he's a historian. He says, uh, doing, uh, combining all those numbers that uh, Assyrians left behind, he says, during their 300 years of hegemony, they deported 4.5 million people. Imagine that. There weren't that many people to begin with. Uh, slave trades uh, of European countries, all those European countries in America combined for hundreds of years, it comes out to about 12 to 15 million. So imagine 3, 000, almost 3,000 years ago, they deported. They deported that many people. Of course, many were killed uh, and starved to death. So it's a very calculated terror. And that continued until Nineveh fell. And Babylonians continued that policy. Uh, just a different country doing uh, the same thing. And they were so affluent, what they did was that uh, they took uh, Judeans now, because northern Israel is already gone, southern Judah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar took uh, them three times. Uh, Jeremiah 52 talks about that. And whereas what Assyrians did was uh, moving one a group of elite of the society, taking them away, and then bringing other people. By doing that, what they're doing is that cutting the heads off. So they're trying to assimilate people, to build one people, right? One Assyrian uh, people. Uh, that's what empires do, uh, by the way. But anyway, uh, what Babylonians did during their hegemony, which was short-lived. By the way, empires come and go. But the kingdom of God remains forever. It is, you know, you may have heard that history is written by victors, winners. Well, actually, history is written by the losers. The ones who were beaten, killed, and barely survived, they are the ones who have the final words. Not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians. Not the Persians, not the Russians, even U.S. It won't be U.S. But anyway, uh, the Babylonians did not repopulate Judah because they were so affluent. And Persia was a little different uh, because, uh, yeah, everybody wanted to be like a Persia. Uh, because Cyrus... Cyrus the Great, the one who came up with a famous Edict of Cyrus, uh, 538, uh, depending on which calendar you use, uh, you know, some say 539, 538, but uh, there's a little, a uh, few months difference between 
Babylonian calendar and Jewish calendar. But anyway, either way is fine. Uh, but uh, this person, when Cyrus, this Midi Persian, conquered Babylon, Babylonian priest, they actually opened the door, welcomed him as a liberator. So, I mean, imagine that. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, they were brutal people. They did terrible things, and they were proud of those things. They put those things in writing, right? But Persians were different. Uh, so, against Babylon, against Assyria, the people uh, always tried to rebel. But Persian king, Cyrus, I mean, even their enemies welcomed him as a liberator. As you can see, what is known as a Cyrus Cylinder at the bottom, the uh, British Museum uh, uh, has that. And that is a, a Babylonian account of uh, the Edict of Cyrus. And we have a Jewish account in Ezra, and a little different because their perspectives are different. But the point is same. What it is is that they welcomed him as a liberator. The conqueror is welcomed as a liberator. Imagine that if you're the conqueror. Or politicians, if you want to be a politician, able politician, you want to be like him. So you, you know what happened? It is said Alexander the Great, when uh, he was conquering the world at night, when he was not in fight, he was reading that book. The one on the right. That book is Education of Cyrus. It is not just him. It is American forefathers, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, those guys. It was their favorite. I mean, that's a politician's ideal, right? I mean, here, same thing in this country. Whoever the president may be, half the Americans hate him, right? Same thing that's happening in Korea and many other places. You know, half the people may elect him to be the president, but the other half hate him. But remember this guy? His enemies welcomed him as liberator, and they left that record. And we have some of that in the Bible as well. So if you want to be a politician, you want to be like him. So, very interesting. But anyway, as you can see the title, Fertility at the Center of Ancient Near Eastern Religions. Well, not much has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Remember, uh, older people may remember uh, Clinton, right? He did that disgusting in the Oval Office right? But Americans re-elected him. Why? There was a time that, that was that saying, it was economy stupid, right? I'm not calling you stupid, but I'm just saying it, right? Uh, it was because they were saying, people were saying, we didn't elect Pope. Economy was good, so in spite of the fact that he did disgusting in the Oval Office, we still elected him to be the president. 
So here, idolatry, you may think idolatry is ridiculous. Think again. At the heart of idolatry is fertility, economy. Follow the money trail. Think about who's going to be benefited by this war that is being waged in Ukraine. Think about that. Who gets benefited by that? So, uh, our politics is actually decided by finance. If it's not good for us, we don't get involved. Black Hawk Down, for example. I mean, there were about 20 American soldiers killed. You know what, what happened after that? We have nothing to gain from being there in Mogadishu. We pulled out. You know what happened? Uh, during Gulf War, James Baker, former Secretary of the State, James Baker came out on PBS, said, we have to protect American interest. And for that, he spelled out oil. That's why we sent our soldiers there. And many died, and you know what? Many more got amputees. You know, so many amputees. And it is not just that. The war, no one wins. Uh, my church member, uh, her son, as a uh, veteran, and out, out of his company, about 60 people, about 40-some people were killed. Many of them died in the States. It messed up their psyche uh, so that they came back damaged. Bodies, maybe one piece, so that they couldn't handle that, they killed themselves, so many of them. So, yeah. War, nobody wins. But here, uh, the thing is, the one on the second one from the left, John Walton, he teaches at Witten. He's a very conservative scholar. And he says in this book uh, that in ancient Eastern language, they didn't even have a word for religion. Did you know that? They didn't even have word for religion, but religion was at the center of everything. Everything that they did is service to God, they said. And you know what's interesting? Yes, that is religion. Uh, in Assyria, their supreme god is Asu. In Babylon, their supreme god is Marduk. And there are many other gods and many idols, you know, and the government system, they sell the idol, idols. It's not that if you are uh, artistic, you can create your own idol, trying to save some money. No, it doesn't work that way. It is very elaborate system that uh, we may think it's stupid, uh, but the second part of idolatry is that it's rationalization. Once you are in it, you don't know what's wrong with good faith and the good about your faith and bad, what's bad about your faith. Actually, that is not just for idolatry. 
that applies to Christians as well. I know this, is, this may be a, a little extreme. I used to teach world religions, and uh, I do not fully buy what uh, world religions experts say, but I can understand why they say that. They say that if you know only one religion, you know none. You have nothing to compare with. So you don't know about what's good about your faith and what's bad about your faith. Sadly, that's what I see these days as well. But anyway, here, uh, at the center of idolatry was fertility. And uh, this person, one, the third one, uh, Canaan and Israel in antiquity, it is that person who talks about that fertility is at the center of idolatry. So here, Let's move on to next one. Here, a Babylon. These are your neighbors, by the way. They teach at TCU. And Leo Perdue, uh, he's a Harding grad, and uh, he teaches at uh, this, pers- uh, this uh, school, TCU. He's the Old Testament scholar. And as you can see here, this is their propaganda, their meta-narrative. What meta-narrative is, simply put, it is a legitimizing story. You may call it a worldview. This is a Babylonian worldview. You may think, oh yeah, who believes that kind of stuff? Nebuchadnezzar, God has given him all their authority. And uh, not only that, if you rebel against that king, Nebuchadnezzar, you are rebelling against gods who appointed him. Well, European kings did the same thing in the uh, Middle Ages. And uh, here, the conquered people are only secondary cit- citizens. So they have to acknowledge his superiority of the Babylonians. You may think oh, that's far-fetched, right? Uh, only primitive people think that way, right? Here, well, let's go to the next slide. Analyze this. Older people may know, uh, Koreans especially, because, you know, to Koreans, this is a hero, war hero. Can anybody tell me what this is? Yes, General MacArthur. So General MacArthur actually carefully orchestrated this picture because this picture says something. What do you see? I don't know about you, but uh, to Koreans, now, you're standing like this uh, with uh, that uniform on. Uh, he doesn't even have head. That's pretty cocky. And the other guy, do you know who that guy is? Yeah, Emperor Hirohito. So Emperor Hirohito is like this, and he's like in a principal's room. What else can this tell? 
to Japanese people. The place that Makata is standing, that's where Hirohito usually stand. That picture shows inferiority of the divine person. We're talking about 20th century. The emperor of Japan was not just any emperor, emperor of the heaven. So he's divine person. So we're talking about even in 20th century, there was that meta-narrative. Very interesting. Again, uh, Pagden, he teaches at Columbia too. He's a, he's a historian. And he, he wrote a thin book on empires and peoples. And he says, empires come and go. Empires in the common sense in the past like that no longer exist because empires take different forms and shapes. So the empires like that no longer exist, but it continues to exist in different forms and shapes. Ideology. Or in different ways. So, here, let's go back to what the Bible talks about. So, let's talk about the way of the Lord. Here, remember, uh, the ancient Near Eastern people were terrible. They were using religions to justify their wrongdoings. Remember, they did terrible things, and they felt all right. Uh, if you have time, read Anima Elish, Gilgamesh Epic, Atrahasis Epic, those ancient Near Eastern religious uh, documents, you will see that these gods are created in human image. They do what powerful people do, very much like kings. And in ancient Near Eastern religions, there's a thin line, blow line between human beings and divine beings. So that just as Emperor Hirohito claimed or a uh, Japanese system claimed that he was divine in the 21st century BC. Yeah, ancient Mesopotamian king claimed while he was still alive, he was divine. Very interesting. The Bible says we are created in God's image, but we're not divine. So, what would you do uh, if you're God? Would you not, if you're God, would you not want to transform the world? And the Bible is doing exactly that. So here, uh, the first thing, uh, for example, uh, where's the sister? Yes, uh, uh, you served in Iraq? Lydia? Uh, Vivian? Yes, you served in Iraq? That's good. Uh, did you know... Uh, Abraham, if we are to use current nationality, do you know which country Abraham is from? Iraq. Chaldean Ur is about maybe 100 miles from Baghdad. So what God did, God chose from the heart of ancient Mesopotamia, a common person, Abraham, to transform the world. Here, uh, let's see the next title. I know, well, that's a poor 
decision on my part. Uh, it's difficult to see. But here, uh, Genesis talks about God's calling of Abraham. And it says, I have known him. It is Hebrew word, yada. I have known him. I have called him so that he may direct his descendants and household to the way of the Lord versus the ways, ways of the nations. The ways of the nations is all about economy. It is about politics. It is about uh, military. It is about conquering other countries and taking their resources and using religions to justify. Because if you read uh, those ancient Near Eastern religions, those documents, that's what those gods do. They are very immoral. There's no ethics. They do terrible things. That's their daily stuff almost. For example, Apsu, he was taking a nap. And his great, great, great children were making too much noise. Apsu is a supreme god. And his descendants are making too much noise so he couldn't take a nap. So he decides to wipe them out. I just became a grandfather. I mean, I mean, I want to hold her, and if I can, I would go down there. I, I mean, I, I would spoil her, <laughs> right? But uh, this great-great-grandfather of uh, the, the gods, because he was not able to take a nap, he was going to wipe them out. So guess what they did instead? Another god, yeah. Spell, put a spell on him, put him to sleep, and they killed him instead. That's the kind of things that gods do. So monkey see, monkey do? Well, no wonder. That's what the ancient people, ancient Mesopotamians did, and put it in writing. They were not afraid of those kind of things. They were proud of those things. So uh, what God wants to do is by electing this hierarchy, is to transform the world by following the way of God, not the ways of the nations, by doing what is right and just. Individually and collectively. You will see that word time after time. Mishpat Tzedakah. When Isaiah prophesied, for example, chapter 5, God talks about, uh, God looks for justice and righteousness from his own people. And when that is absent, God sends them away. So basically, Israelites, Israel's prophets, they talk about the laws of their country because for centuries, for thousands of years, they were under foreign occupation. If anybody knows about oppression, they did. And this actually gave them national identity. Rather than being assimilated, uh, they held on to the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, and they have the final word, not the Babylonians, not the Syrians who conquered them. Very interesting. But here, let's move on to the next one. Let's talk about these three things. Non-specialization of the divine image. 
non-specialization of holiness. Third, non-specialization of justice. I know uh, I don't know how long it has been, uh, but now we're getting into the main part. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll try to make it short. Okay, uh, if I go over time, uh, you may get an extra point. Well, that's what I tell my students, and they love it uh, because. For every minute I go over time, they get an extra point. <laughs> I penalize them if uh, they come late or they leave early. I penalize them, right? It's fair for me to be penalized if I stay too long or hold them too long. I tell them that I give extra points if I go over time, but today I guess my extra points won't be anything to you. <laughs> Here, uh, let's go to the next slide. Here, uh, you have heard that the Bible says that we are created in God's image, right? But that was nothing new. In ancient New Eastern people, their uh, culture, they believed the kings were created in God's image. Kings had divine image. Common people? Nope. So imagine that. We're talking about almost 3,000 years ago. You know, I teach in the heart of Texas. In 1990s, when I first came to the uh, uh, Texas area, my uh, friend who was dating, Af uh, who was actually, he, he, he was, he's uh, African-American, and he was dating Canadian women, a white person. She didn't want to, they didn't want to come down to Texas, 1990s. So it's, uh, time has changed because mixed marriage. I cannot imagine in this country, right here, in this state, 1960s, black people, white people couldn't, eat in the same restaurant, could not even use the same restroom, could not even use the same water fountain. That's just, uh, yeah, 50, 60 years ago. Imagine that. 3,000 years ago, the Bible says everyone is created in God's image. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. That is, you know, remember, I became a Christian as a young adult. This is fascinating. Nothing get, can get any better than this. And what's the implication that everyone is created in God's image? Remember, their theology, because God's, because they're powerful, they do whatever they can, Right? Even trying to kill their own offspring because it's just inconvenient. That's their mindset, their worldview. So, killing a person, well, they're expendable. Their mythology shows that humans are created as expendable slaves. So, yeah, for the powerful people, People are just expendable. 
That's what Putin is doing. Yeah, so many of his soldiers dying, but he doesn't care about those things. And I just read this morning, actually, uh, this particular uh, group, I mean, 10 times they failed, but they did the same thing again, again, again. These Russians, that's the Russian way of doing things. And pretty dumb. They don't talk about, what that article says is that they don't talk about the military leaders. They're not concerned about loss of their soldiers' lives. What they're most afraid of is what's going to come to him by his superior. Pretty strange thing, right? So it's all about here. And what it is in this case is that if everyone is created in God's image, you know what the Bible says? Genesis 9 says that if you kill a person, you've got to give your life. A life for life. Here, uh, for example, if I can find, I teach Old Testament, but sometimes it's not easy to find some books, huh? Okay, here. Uh, Proverbs, it says, for example, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Because everyone is created in God's image, you do not mess with other people's lives. Just oppressing them is a contempt. I mean, that's a drastically different worldview. That is what God is trying to do. Transform the world, change people's mindset. Let's go to the second one. Next slide. Non-specialization of holiness. Very interesting. Uh, remember, there's no ethics in ancient Near Eastern religions, ethics is not part of their vocabulary. Uh, we assume these days holiness has everything to do with ethics, right? Again, thanks to the Bible, history is not written by the victors. History is written by the losers. <laughs> but who are the actually ultimate winners? Because they have the final word. Because what happens is that in ancient national world, gods are not even called holy. Only those things and uh, those people that are used at uh, cult or the temple, only those things and people are called holy. And that has nothing to do with ethics. But in the Bible, it is said, it is not just a temple official, but uh, Leviticus chapter 9, 19, and many other places actually says, be holy just as I am holy. Everyone is called to be holy. And Leviticus, you know, this is something that Christians don't pay attention to. But you know what? For Jewish people, it is the first book that they teach to their children. Even though, like us, they do not sacrifice but this is the basic, this is the foundation of everything. Because it is fascinating. Because here it shows that everyone is to be holy, but that holiness has everything to do with how I treat others. In ancient Near Eastern religions, that had nothing to do 
with religion. I mean, how I treat others. That's why those kings, they, they did whatever they did. Terrible things because it's all about them. It's all about economy. It's all about what they call, actually, uh, scholars call political or temple economy. Bank. In first bank in human history. It was in ancient Eastern religions. The temple was the bank. And Shamash interest, 20%. That's just interest. If you borrow grain, that's 33%. That's from sowing to harvesting, which means that's a shortened period. Let's say if it's six months, you're jacking up the interest rate to 40%. Or if it's grain, 66%. Imagine that. That's loan shock, right? That's a terrible situation. So most people, the elite of the society, they were the ones rich. But most people lived very poor lives. So that's the kind of world that they lived in. And the Bible, Israel, is saying no to those kind of things. So here... The first thing, let me just read one thing about uh, what it means to be holy, uh, among many other things. Okay, here it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the cleaning of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So what it talks about is that ancient Eastern culture don't care about the 98% of the society. Well, that's the same thing in Roman time. You know, fast forward 100 years, hundreds of years, Roman time, uh, Pax Romana, well, Roman peace, yes, many good things happened, but you know what? At whose expense? Uh, Roman culture, yeah, 30% uh, were Roman citizens who didn't have to pay tax. How nice. Uh, I loved it uh, when we moved back to Texas because we didn't have to pay tax. In Oregon, we paid 9%. So the first year when we moved back, we got $7,200 for a tax return. That was sweet. Imagine if you don't have to pay tax. Wouldn't that be nice? But if you still get the you know, benefit of the tax, right? So what happened uh, in Roman culture was that, yes, 40, uh, 30%, uh, they didn't have to pay tax. One-third of Rome was uh, slaves. So where did they get the tax? By conquering other countries, taking their resources. Again, their religions justified all of that. So, as opposed to the way of God, in this case, is that we take care of each other, especially the ones who are less fortunate. Uh, my church uh, is uh, mostly white, 
but I am proud of. It's a very conservative church. Uh, we have our own problems, but I am grateful. I am proud of my church people because uh, last Sunday, we raised fund. One day, we raised fund for Ukrainians. And $134,000, single day, to help them. And we have missionaries who are working there, smuggling people out. Uh, smuggling? No, that's not right. Uh, bringing people to safety, uh, orphan kids, uh, because they both worked with orphanage. Let's move to the next one. Here, non-specialization of justice. Let's talk about a famous code of Hammurabi. Uh, Hammurabi is very much like, uh, yeah, uh, well, I hate uh, Trump, so I'm going to say it anyway. I said it to my uh, American friend, uh, students all the time. Why not to this crowd? Okay, uh, like uh, Trump, this uh, code of Hammurabi, Hammurabi is a very humble person. Oh, no, I'm being sarcastic. He talks about how wise, how powerful, and all that. Uh, he's the best of the best and all those kind of things. He brought uh, peace and prosperity by conquering enemies in the north and south, east, west. Yeah, what kind of peace is that? But anyway, he says he's the defender of the poor and needy. And in his prologue and his epilogue, he says that in both places. And he's the one who wipes off of uh, their face, the poor and needy's face, their tears. Maybe give him some benefit of doubt. Maybe it is in the part that is missing. But out of 260-some verses, his actual law does not even mention poor and needy. That is very interesting. In the prologue and in the epilogue, he is uh, boasting that he's a defender of the poor and needy. But when you actually, you know, again, I have my students read and compare those things. And uh, very interesting, uh, what it is is that uh, there are three classes. The elite of the society, common people, and slaves. And the uh, law code Code of Hammurabi talks about law that if a noble person, something wrong he did, if his animal killed a person, well, he can just pay off. Nothing happens to him. But if you compare that to what the Bible says, but if the, in the Bible, if the owner knew that the uh, ox must die, and if owner knew, owner is responsible, no matter who is killed. Whereas in ancient Near Eastern system, Kodo Bahamrabi, well, if you are elite of the society, if you have means, if you have connection, you get off. That's not fair, is it? We're talking about 3,000 years ago. Well, by the way, Kodo Hammurabi, uh, that goes way back to 1750 B.C. <laughs> We're talking about long, long time ago. That was common back then. But the Bible is correcting that to make it fair. 
what is doing what is right and just, both individually and collectively. Let's move to the next one. Oh, well, before we do that, let's read this one. Uh, yeah, stay there. Here. Uh, this person is actually a British legal scholar. And what he did was he is comparing ancient Eastern law code. He's a legal scholar, so he teaches at law school. He compared ancient Eastern law code, uh, in, uh, British law code, and then the biblical law code. He says both uh, British law code and ancient Eastern law code Justice, he says, justice is in the hands of few experts. In Mesopotamia, Hammurabi, he claims that it was his responsibility to uphold justice and righteousness. Guess what happens if justice is in the hands of a single person? You can kiss that goodbye. Because it was just a propaganda. It was not actually practiced, his law code. It was just showing up. It was royal propaganda. And he says, this person, Burnside, says, British law system, you know, we have to fix this problem. Because, you know, justice is in the hands of few experts. If justice is in the hands of more people, there is a better chance that justice and righteousness will be carried out. That's basically what this book is saying. And here, he says two things about biblical law. Hundreds of years later than the Code of Hammurabi. And even before Code of Hammurabi, there were other law codes in ancient Near East. But again, that's biased. That's not fair. Fair only to the elite of the society they can get off of whatever the trouble they get in because, yeah, it's written that way. But here, again, uh, they're in the expert, in the hands of expert, but uh, Deuteronomy says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Again, the Bible is not telling just Israel like king to uphold justice and righteousness. Psalm 72 does talk about that. It's a royal psalm, and uh, according to Septuagint, it is a David's prayer on behalf of Solomon, his son Solomon. And he says, And thou the king, wisdom, justice, so that he may rule his people with justice and righteousness. But from the beginning, even before um, Moses, you know, here he's talking about the time when they did not have king, right? So the design here in the Bible is that it is everyone's duty to uphold justice and righteousness. Because when that happens, there's better chance. And th there is that uh, responsibility that all of us have. And Israel, actually, yeah, people are people. They did not listen to this until they lost their independence. It was only when they lost their independence 
only after they lost their kingship, they went back to this. Because it, it, it is not just a king who, who they relied on, but they don't have a king, then what did they do? They declared that Yahweh is king. And uh, they took this uh, task, non-specialization of justice. What it is is that it is everyone's duty to uphold justice. So uh, they renew this teaching that was uh, from the beginning. So let's move to the next slide. One last slide. So I'll be done with this one. So here, uh, the one on the right, uh, top right, we become what we worship. Uh, this person talks about uh, different parts of the Bible, both Old Testament and the New Testament. We do become what we worship. The ancient Eastern gods were terrible beings, powerful. But, uh, you know, those powerful beings, for example, even international treaties. I'm Korea, a Korean American, so I know about Korean culture uh, better, uh, Korean uh, history better. So who made the decision to separate North and South Korea? North Koreans and South Koreans. No, we weren't invited. Somebody else made a decision for us, former Soviet and U.S. Very interesting, isn't it? Uh, in the matters of uh, treaties, usually the stronger party takes advantage of the situation. Isn't that how it works in the world? That's how it worked in the ancient world, and that's how it works as it is today. But, you know what? Ancient Eastern kings or, or the gods, they don't even make promises to lowly human beings because they're expendable slaves created to make their lives easy. By the way, in the ancient Eastern world, Assyrian king's daily duty is to clothe gods and feed gods. I know you may be thinking, yeah, that's ridiculous. So that those gods, you know, Shamash is sun god, the sun god can focus on his task of maintaining the sun. That's their thinking. Again, it is the world view legitimizing story. The question is, what is our worldview? What is it that we are bought into? Many people don't even question what that is. But anyway, as you can see there, these gods, there's no, or did I say that those gods are not described as holy? Loyalty is not in their vocabulary. They do whatever because they could. Not fair, isn't it? As opposed to the one on the right. Well, yes, on the right, you're right. Here, the, the things that we know, but God is faithful, right? Again, 
in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was not in their vocabulary. Thanks to the Bible that we, even non-Christians, assume that God is faithful, God is loving, caring. Again, thanks to the Bible, their worldview, their mythology, their religion was not like that. I mean, imagine uh, in the first century, their worship, worship was focused on communion because, you know why? Because this God, unlike ancient Eastern Greco-Roman gods who do not care about human beings, this God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for us. I mean, that's the good news. That's unheard of. So that was the highlight. God is a, this God of the Bible is drastically different as opposed to gods of the ancient Near East. This God liberates. I mean, like I said, I teach Old Testament. I teach you this stuff every day. And I am fascinated by this. I grew up as a secular person, so I know how things work. But these days, reading books on economy, reading books on politics, reading books on different things other than the Bible, because you know what? I, I tell my students, do not sanitize the Bible. We think as if the Bible is dealing with just religious stuff. But this deals with all aspects of our lives. We become what we worship. God is transforming the world. God has in the past. God is in this moment. I mean, Fascinating. Uh, when I, you know, whenever I took my students to China, you know, I took my students to China because I want myself to see what God is already doing. Because God is transforming people. God goes where He is wanted, and God will continue to transform the world. And Thank you for your presence, your presence living in this country. Even if you are born in this country, you are an outsider in a way, right? But blessed are you because the ones who wrote this, most of this, diaspora, the ones who were born, who were taken to somebody else's country by force, these days, scholars talk about forced migration. It wasn't their will, deportation, right? Only then, Israelites paid attention. And just as Paul talks about, my citizenship, he says, belongs to the heaven. You know, I, I don't know about you. You know, 25 years after I left my own country, Korea, I went back with my students the Korea that I left 25 years ago moved on. It was not the same country that I left. 
I felt like I was a foreigner there. I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen, but I tell my church people, mostly white, and I tell my students, again, mostly white, that my loyalty belongs to the heaven. I'm at a stage where I can speak no language fluently. I studied eight different languages, but I speak none fluently, even Korean. And I love this because had I stayed in Korea, I'm not sure whether I would have become a Christian. But living in a foreign country, that does something. Even if you were born in this country, you do not look like those outside. But that diaspora, Jews, maintaining their identity, that this has helped them to maintain their identity. And they move the human history because their perception of God is drastically different as opposed to what the world offers. So we have to think about what it is the world is telling us these days. Not much has changed. Empires take different forms and shapes. They come and go, but only kingdom of God that remains eternally. Let us pray.